This Star News Media Podcast is presented by North Chase Family Dentistry. Open evenings, Saturdays, and they probably take your insurance. Visit them on the web at NorthChaseFamilyDentistry.com. And by Tidewater Heating and Air Conditioning, servicing all major brands with highly trained technicians who are the best the industry has to offer, serving Wilmington and surrounding communities for more than 40 years. Learn more at TidewaterAC.com. And by Cape Fear Pharmacy, a local independent pharmacy providing health care and compounding services customized to meet our patients' needs. Visit CapeFearPharmacy.com today and let us take care of you. Thirty-two miles off the coast of southeastern North Carolina, Frying Pan Tower overlooks the very namesake of the Cape Fear region. For nearly half a century, the tower, which stands 135 feet above the water, was the area's farthest reaching light tower, a duty it inherited from a long lineage of bright efforts to shine the way of safe passage to and from our shores. Since the first one was built on Bald Head Island in 1795, a lighthouse or multiple, have been operated on the coast of this region to warn mariners of the dangers of the treacherously shallow frying pan shoals. This long stretch of ever-shifting sand extends right off the tip of this region, and from an aerial view, resembles the shape of a frying pan. Or at least that's the story behind its oddly specific name. The shoals have been a thorn in the side of mariners since the discovery of this area nearly 500 years ago, and they've claimed their fair share of ships, contributing greatly to North Carolina's legendary status as the graveyard of the Atlantic. But these shallow shoals of sand and bedrock, into which the tower's pilings are driven 40-some feet, are actually what first earned this region the nickname, the Cape of Fear, later shortened to the much catchier and foreboding Cape Fear. In essence, Frying Pan Tower was the most ambitious line of defense against the submerged natural danger that awaited vessels off our shores, in those days before GPS brought navigation into the digital age. We've previously told the story of Old Baldy Lighthouse on this podcast. How it was built from the bricks of its doomed predecessor and opened in 1817 as a crucial guiding light for ships hoping to enter the Cape Fear River safely. Old Baldy still stands today as the state's oldest surviving lighthouse. But over the years, as the region literally changed shape, and Mother Nature opened up new entrances to the river, more lighthouses were needed to join the ranks. In time, Oak Island and Federal Point would become home to new lights, and Baldhead Island would, for a time, get a second bulb at the Cape Fear Lighthouse. But even before these towers went vertical, there was an inescapable fear among mariners that the lights on Baldhead and the coast in general couldn't shine far enough to divert disaster at the end of the shoals. So in 1854, 
the U.S. Coast Guard sought to try a different tactic. Instead of being bound by a tower on land, they anchored a lightship on the tip of the shoals, known as the Frying Pan Lightship. Except for a few years when its crews were pulled away by distractions such as the Civil War and World War II, this fleet of lightships manned this post for 110 years. Each one painted with the words frying pan on their side. But in 1964, the Coast Guard began construction on Frying Pan Tower, a more permanent, stationary light station that wasn't at the mercy of choppy waves. The style of the tower was known as a Texas Tower because it was modeled after a steel oil drilling platform. Sitting atop four pilings is a six-bedroom deck house built in Louisiana and transported by barge to the tower's base, onto which it was lifted by a crane. It includes a kitchen, living space, several workspaces, and essentially what amounts to a maintenance garage. On top of the deck house is a helicopter landing pad and a smaller 50-foot tower, which holds a rotating light that could be seen 17 miles out when it was first installed. On November 27, 1964, the last light ship to anchor on the shoals blew its parting whistle and retired, handing its century-old post over to the light tower. For decades, the ship would be moored in Southport, offering tours to guests. For the next 40 years, as anyone approached this region by sea, it was Frying Pan Tower that would serve as their first light of the Cape Fear. Initially, the tower was manned by a rotating group of Coast Guardsmen who lived up to four weeks at a time out of the deckhouse, cooking their meals in the kitchen and spending their downtime in the break room. But in 1979, the need to protect these crew members from the ever-constant threat of hurricanes forced the Coast Guard to automate the lighthouse, which meant it no longer needed a round-the-clock crew, but rather just occasional maintenance visits. As GPS became more advanced in the late 20th century, the tower became increasingly obsolete, and in 2004, it was finally retired and later put up on the auction block. It was purchased in 2010 by a man with a vision. For a time, he opened its doors, so to speak, to adventure-seeking guests as one of the world's most remote bed and breakfasts. But it was all contributing to a larger mission, to not let the 40-year-old tower waste away or be claimed by the ocean but rather preserve its legacy as a guardian of the Cape Fear. That brings us to the summer of 2020, as you and I embark on a historic field trip like nothing we've ever done before. This is Cape Fear Unearthed, 
the podcast exploring the persisting legends, historical oddities, and landmark stories of southeastern North Carolina. As always, I'm your host, Hunter Ingram, and I'm a reporter with the Star News in Wilmington. This week, we're bringing you our biggest episode yet, and that's because Cape Fear and Earth is coming to you from international waters, on deck of Frying Pan Tower. That's right. This week's episode is being recorded 32 miles off the coast on a light tower first operated in 1964, and since then has lived through numerous hurricanes and technological advances. I simply could not pass up the opportunity to spend a night here on Frying Pan Tower, not just because it's an incredible adventure, but also because this tower is a vital piece of this region's history. As always, I've already given you a primer on the history of the tower and why it plays such an important role in this region's lighthouse legacy. But now, I want to dig a little deeper into what it's like to live on this tower for a few hours, for a few days, and maybe even for a few months. I want to talk about how it survived half a century at the mercy of Mother Nature and the ocean. And more importantly, I want to talk about how the work of its owners and volunteers are trying to preserve it for the future. And there's no better person to help me tell the story than Richard Neal, the man who bought the tower in 2010 for $85,000 when it went up for auction. Richard, thank you so much for letting me come out here and spend some time on the tower with you. I'm glad to have you out here. It's now, a great place to be. It is. It really is. And we've been out here all day. Uh, I was worried there was going to be a lot of uh, storms and uh, showers, and instead there's been a lot of... Uh, sun and it's been uh it's been quite pleasant and i was talking to you earlier about how you don't really feel the magnitude of this place until you're really out here and and where it is and the serenity that you kind of see around it it's it's so easy to unplug it's something we talk about so often but here it's uh it's quite possible well there's simply no distractions out here when you look across the horizon all you're seeing is just the ocean and the clouds and occasional rain showers falling down or if you look down at the water, you see barracuda larger than your leg yeah. just hanging out underneath the tower waiting for a new meal. They swim with the current. We were watching them earlier and they just kind of hold their position waiting for waiting for something to break off from one of the legs beneath us. Yeah, absolutely right. You know, it's funny. In uh, Oklahoma, where I grew up, we had weather vanes which were on the top of the barns and they would turn into the wind. But out here... We simply look at the barracuda turned into the current. That's true. That's how you were telling me the current earlier. Now, I imagine for a lot of people, the first question they have for you is why the heck you would want to own this tower 32 miles out here? What is your response to them? Well, you know, it's interesting. If you go and you buy something on a splurge, you don't really know why you do it until maybe in retrospect, you look back and you think about it. And I realized I actually bought my childhood treehouse <laughs> without even realizing it. Exactly. Um, and this, it really is because it's not in a tree, but you can go around it. You can see it. It's got the views. I mean, it's just, uh, it, it's, it's really magnificent. And, and that's why I was, I was so kind of passionate about coming out here and doing this. And, and, uh, so I appreciate you, you helping me make it happen. Uh, so I want to, I want to talk a little bit about how this opportunity came to you. So how did you find out about the tower? Because it was decommissioned. I mean, it was retired and then it was put up for auction, but it wasn't just a simple single auction and done. How did this kind of fall in your lap? Well, you know, it's interesting as a kid growing up in Oklahoma, the ocean was the furthest thing from my mind. Yeah. I went to Galveston Bay and looked at that hot, muddy water and thought, I don't like oceans. This is ridiculous. 
But one evening in 2008, right in the middle of the recession, as everybody's trying to figure out how we're going to make money and survive, I was doing a little searching on the web and came across this weird thing called government auctions. And so in spending a little time, I'm a computer guy, so I'm on the computer anyway, right? And in just a few short minutes, I found that they had this old bank for sale. Nah, I don't want a bank, it's in the middle of nowhere. They had a warehouse for sale. I don't need a warehouse. A bunch of FEMA trailers. I don't need FEMA trailers. A strange box on stilts in the middle. Wait, what? In the ocean? So scroll back and let's look at that. I had no idea what the frying pan tower was. I had never heard of it and have actually only been in the ocean once or twice in my life. I still don't own a boat. Wow. But you have quite the, uh, the access to the ocean out here because I watched you earlier lower someone kind of on a, on a chairlift into the water so that they could just kind of look down. I mean, it's just kind of unparalleled access to what is such beautiful water out here. I mean, the color of it, it's, it's kind of hard to describe. It's really this it, deep blue. It is. It's this, it's this crazy uh, turquoise aqua looking. If you see the pictures from come visit our islands in the Caribbean, that's mm -hmm. our water. And it's yeah. right up here just off the coast of North Carolina. So it, it is a little bit odd. And uh, the ability to lift and lower people out of the water was learned over time to try and figure out how do we get a person on the tower safely. Yeah. Because having them get on a boat, get close to the legs that don't get out of the way, and uh, that's just dangerous. And then climbing all the way up that leg, you know, that's something I'll do. But I would much rather have a person get pulled up by a high-speed hoist and then stand up. They're inside. Absolutely. Safe and sound. So you bid on it. Yeah. How, I mean, what was that process like? I mean, was it more of a kind of a, a blind bid, like I'm just going to do it, see what happens? Well, they had an original auction in 09 where a bunch of people were bidding on it, and I kind of stood back because it got very rich for my blood, as they say. And it went over a half million dollars before it finally closed. And the guy that actually bought it decided that, for whatever reason, he wasn't really ready to do it. So the government listed it again the next year, and I ended up getting a notification of it because I was on the original bidders list along with the newspaper articles talking about it things like that saying this time we're just going to do a sealed bid if you want it bid on it and if you get it you get it same thing uh, as is where is can inspect it that's just how it is and for some reason I just still felt the urge and so I uh, knew that the minimum bid was 10k and I knew that the additional increments were a thousand dollars so I thought well eleven thousand dollars and then I looked in my wallet and my dear sweet daughters had not yet raided my wallet. They were teenagers at the time. <laughs> so I had $262 in my wallet. So I bid $11,262 uh, with absolutely no indication or understanding that I would end up being the only one that even bid on it. So I won the bid for just over eleven grand. Wow. And then, but as you were telling me a little bit earlier, you know, they came back to you and kind of wanted to hassle a little bit, uh, you know, yeah. it's to kind of raise the price because they had initially had an offer of 500000 and That's right. Somebody with 11000 Somebody was going to be really embarrassed that worked for the government. And so they said, well, we do think it's worth slightly more than that. And I said, well, guys, an open auction is what it's worth. And they said, well, we've had two of them, one for a half million and yours for 11. If you'd like, we would average them. You can write us a check for a quarter of a million dollars. So obviously that was time to go, all right, what do we really need to do here? And they surprised me with saying, do you like baseball? And I thought, what on earth are they talking about? And then the, the gentleman from the GSA looked at me, smiled, and he says, I figure it this way, Richard. He said, you hit a good bunt and made it to first base. Wouldn't you like to make a home run? 
I thought, wow, huh. Well, so we're not going to negotiate, but we are going to talk about what it might possibly take to actually acquire this. So as we went back and forth and discussing how to navigate around the bases, uh, worked my way up to about $65,000, which I didn't have, and then smiled and looked at the older gentleman and said, I'm not very big. He was a big guy. And he said, okay. I said, I'm not very fast. Well, what's your point, Richard? I said, well, you know, I played baseball as a kid for nine years, and occasionally I stole home. <laughs> and he wiggled his finger at me and smiled, and he says, you don't steal from the government, Richard, which I must admit we all laughed about. <laughs> so we ended up the day with uh, an ending value of $85,000 for the tower, again, without even seeing it. So this is all speculative at this time. Quite the blind buy. I don't have the money. I've not seen the tower. Can you imagine going to a bank and saying, I'd like to borrow $85,000? Oh, okay. What are its comparable locations? Well, there aren't any. Well, can we go inspect it? Well, no, actually, you can't inspect it. Well, um, <laughs> how on earth are we going to do this? So, anyway, um, by virtue of just having a good friend that had faith in me, I was able to buy the tower. I paid him back a couple years later. And the next thing I know, I'm trying to figure out, what do I do with this thing? How do I fix it? How do I get people interested in... How do we make this thing that's been so important for so many people for so many decades, how do we wake it back up again? Yeah. And that's become my mission, and that's what I'm doing now with uh, the nonprofit, fbtower.org, and we're starting to get people's attention. Absolutely. So, and that's why I'm here. You got my attention. Well, it's, been, <laughs> it's been so much fun. You know, we have a hurricane, and our flag has a rough time, but then we turn right around and we auction it off, and we give the proceeds to people that have been harmed by the hurricanes. And that's been a blessing for them. Well, we put up a new flag immediately. We're proud, even though we're not technically in America, to be Americans on a Coast Guard facility that uh, we're doing our best to try and maintain. This whole operation here is is really fascinating because you're, you're not the owner anymore. No. You, you've divested. You, you've yep. brought on um, other owners. You now run the, the nonprofit, which is intended to uh, preserve it. And that's the main mission for you right now. Mm -hmm. But I'm curious, the first time you were able to come out here, what did you see? What was out here? You know, it's an interesting thing. I grew up in Oklahoma and in a small town where my grandparents lived, all the buildings were like right next to each other. So you've probably seen pictures of old cities and towns where it was, here's the barbershop, here's the movie theater, here's the dry goods store, things like that. Almost like out of an old Western. Mm -hmm. And when you walked into one of those stores, you felt like you were walking back into time. It might have been an owner that had operated that place for 30, 40, 50 years. And you just felt the presence of there's been so much invested over so many long decades. And that's how it was. I walked in the door. It wasn't musty. It didn't smell. It was, of course, dirty with age. But I felt like I walked back into time. I walked into one of the rooms and propped up on the desk was an old briefcase. And in the drawer was a pair of like 1970s Levi 501 jeans, <laughs> which by the way fit me and I wore them a few times before they <laughs> fell apart. And you know, other things like that and a cigar sitting in a ashtray still and an old Coors can, not a Coors Light, they didn't have it back then. Hmm. Uh, and it's so paper thin from just simply rotting away in the elements. And so this place, when they retired it, they yeah. kind of left it as is. I mean, so the, the pool table that's here, that was still here. Yeah, it was still here, and there were still pool balls on the table, which was kind of an amazing thought. Oh, wow. It's almost and, like a ghost ship. <laughs> and people have asked me, they're like, are there spirits walking the hallways? And I'm like, well, no, but it depends on how much someone's had to drink. But uh, in <laughs> general, the place has been a piece of history that 
we open a door and, and look into a cabinet or maybe go into the ceiling and work on something and we might find someone's notes from the 1960s. We might find a, a tool, as we have, uh, that's been sitting up there for 45 years. And that's just kind of strange and also a, a reverent type of feeling of, I'm in a place that was so much, so valuable for so many years. And now with GPS and everything else, people are like, I don't care, whatever. I can just hit my phone and it'll direct me home. You know, Siri, take me home, right? And um, back then they didn't have that. Yeah. We hadn't landed on the moon. You know, no. JFK was still alive. Things like that. So, well, I mean, was there anything that you have found since you've been here over the years that just sticks with you from that time? Anything that you know pops into your mind right now? Yeah, some of the handwritten notes that were from the uh, Coast Guard guys when they were in their late teens, early twenties, where they would make a note or two about their experiences out here. I mean, this was at, back then still a place that had an impact. And I've been contacted, even all these years later, with several of them that just, how is it, how's the old gal doing, are you taking care of it, I had these great experiences, and a few of them have come back out here, which has been really kind of a weird, bittersweet thing, but also very healing for them. You told me that you've even brought some veterans out here that that have been able to kind of... Yep unplug like I said earlier and, and just really kind of take in the moment earlier I was sitting on top of the helipad and uh, you know kind of dozed off because it's so serene up it's very there peaceful, isn't it? yeah. well you know uh, PTSD is something that if you don't experience it it's hard to explain mm-hmm. it's that gnawing feeling at the back of your skull that's always there and out here it seems to go away for people so we've had several vets that have been in various stages of disability that have participated. It's like, I understand you can barely move, but what do you want to do? And they'll grab a brush and they'll start painting the wall. They'll start working on something. They may have some electronic skills. And I think our message to them is, you're just as valuable now as you were before you were harmed. Mm-hmm. And they leave here with their head a little bit higher and ready to come back again. We talked about this earlier, um, but there seems to be a real sense of uh, duty to this place, even for people who are just coming out here. They, they want to kind of leave it better than they came to it. Just even days before, I mean, you've been out here a decade and obviously are, yeah. are working to, to, to fortify it, but even a weekend can come out here and, and make people feel like they want to be a part of it. You know, I, I was uh, telling you earlier, it's a strange thing. Back when we were trying to figure out how do I do this and what do we do, we would bring out people for bed and breakfast per se mm-hmm. with the whole goal of let's get out here and do some work while we're here. Yeah. And inevitably, <laughs> they would stop whatever they're doing, whether or not it was fishing or sun tanning and hanging out, and say, you know, I, I could paint that room. Can I paint that room? Do you mind if I... And I'm like, yeah, go right ahead. Let's, let's do it. So I, I realized that people that participated uh, took ownership and took pride in what we were trying to do. And, and the people that have done that <laughs> have contacted me year after year with, you know what, we're coming back, and this time I'm bringing my grandson. Like, I think that's fantastic. You know, let's get out here. Um, I got a great project for you guys to work on, and let's just keep moving forward. Now, I want to give our listeners, since this is a podcast, obviously it doesn't have the visual component, though I have been taking tons of photos that I will share. I want to give them a sense of where we are right now. Right. So we are 32 miles off the coast, mm-hmm. but as they can hear, uh, you can hear the waves that are kind of crashing against the legs. It's mm-hmm. actually been a pretty calm day in terms oh, of yeah. the actual surf, uh, but you you hear birds and what are they called again? Royal terns. Royal we terns. Royal terns that travel halfway around the world to come and roost out here. 
Yes. And so kind of talk with me a little bit about, you know, when you're here, where we are. I mean, what are what are you seeing and, and what's around us? You know, it's an interesting thing on the West Coast. You can go very shortly offshore and you're in very, very deep water very quickly. And the water is very cold. Out here, the water is very temperate. It's, it's warm. We're right next to the Gulf Stream, mm-hmm. which occasionally will come swinging right by us. And the grounds are actually very shallow. So it's about 40 to 60 miles offshore before it actually drops into what we call the deep water. So we're in this kind of weird plateau of 40 to 60 to 80 foot of water that extends way beyond where you would ever see. It's kind of like, a, I guess you'd call it the wading pool yeah. of the uh, west side of the Atlantic. And because of that, we don't see shore from here. We can barely see a, a lighthouse that actually is on shore, but we don't see houses or lights or anything like that. And for the most part, we simply see water all the way around us. So if you can imagine this, you look outside in the morning and what do you see? You see the sunrise cracking over there. And even before the sun, before the sun pops up, you see the glow in the sky. And then in the evenings, uh, the sun drops off and you can watch it go directly down into the water. Occasionally we've seen the green flash, which if you don't know what that is, it's worth a Google. Um, it's where the light from the sun for a very brief glimmer pops a beautiful color of green. Wow. And uh, it's, it's an amazing thing. Uh, we've seen water spouts out here. We've seen whales and turtles and sharks and rays and, and all manner of types of uh, just wild creatures in the ocean below us. And uh, underneath us, because of the nature of having these legs down into the water with all these pipes where all the little fish can hide, this turns into a natural aquarium. So we have tens of thousands of all different sizes of fish hanging out underneath us, basically saying, look at me, look at me. And it's just beautiful. Well, and you also have people that come out here and... and are either fishing or they're taking a joy ride off this area and they know it's out here. I mean, today uh, you made a connection with three uh, men who are in the Coast Guard who were actually hanging out in a few rooms yep. around us who uh, caught some fish, cooked it up for us for dinner, oh, and it was amazing. And yeah. I just think that there's a real sense, uh, you're 34, 32 miles off the coast, but there's still a real sense of community here. There is. Um, one thing that most people wouldn't think about if they've not been in the ocean and away from shore is that the permanence of this structure and the ability to just see something solid and non-changing and reassuring is what people will gravitate to. So on a nice calm Saturday, we could look outside and see 30 boats outside. They might be catching bait fish to go off to the Gulf Stream to go catch fish later. They might be uh, free diving and swimming underneath the tower, uh, any number of things. Uh, but it's that reassuring place where we've also implemented uh, really good internet access for uh, all the boaters around here with no charge because we want them to basically be able to phone home or check the weather or call the Coast Guard as they've done when they've had issues in the past. So it's also uh, restoration, but it's also the security and safety of the people that are out here as mariners. It's reinforcing the original purpose of this tower which was to be a resource and now it's more of a resource in the modern era with internet and all all these capabilities but it's returning it to that purpose even though it had been retired and kind of cast off by the coast guard you know it is interesting you know our message of restore protect and preserve is really just a repetition of what it was originally Um, i'm sure that they thought in the 90s and early 2000s that it'd just be chopped uh, chopped apart and thrown in the ocean 
but because of uh, all the people that really care about it and that are in the region uh, that actually can do a little bit. You know, it's funny. We, we get up in the morning, we have a cup of coffee, and we talk about what's going to happen during the day, and we've got a number of people that get up and have a cup of coffee with us. And some people donate one cup of coffee's worth of <laughs> money to help us every month. So people will say, how can my $5 help you? And I say, it's not your $5. It's your plus these other 500 people's $5 that buy us the paint and the steel and the parts and the pieces to actually just takes to put it back together. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the nonprofit is just that. We don't have any employees, no salaries, no benefits. It is our goal simply to be good stewards of what we have here. And that's been, it's been the best job I've ever had. It's been the most fun I've ever had. Oh, I can imagine. I've been out here for a few hours and it's, yeah, it's just unreal. Yeah. So tell me this, yeah. you know, you mentioned internet and I think it's really interesting to see how this place has, has retained the look of the 70s, I mean the 60s and the 70s, yeah. but you've been able to upgrade it in ways that make it um, accessible, make it okay for you guys to live out here um, for, for a few days, for a few weeks. Um, what kind of upgrades have you made besides the internet? Because the internet's um, connected to the webcams that people might have seen before right. with explore.org. Well, one of the things I had to learn how to do <laughs> with trying to figure out how to fix this thing was learn how to beg without begging. And so letting people that want to help know that you need help is really the key thing. So we were able to find explore.org and they said, yeah, we, we'll put a camera down underneath the water and beam the in information to shore if you figure out how to do it. And I'm not an engineer to the type of knowing, I'm not an electrical engineer, mechanical engineer, or nearly any kind, but I said, let's figure that out. And luckily we were able to find the right people with the right skills that uh, we were able to engineer a microwave shot 56 miles to shore, which we were told is the longest shot they've done, which is kind of impressive and uh, get really high-speed internet out here for the sake of passing the video feeds that go into schools all over the nation, actually all around the world, so they can watch and see what's going on underneath the water or look at the waves on top uh, and watch the weather when the hurricanes come through. And you know, just the ability to make this available. So internet's one thing, mm -hmm. um, making the water clean, using the sun. Right now it's very quiet. That's because 95% of the time, we're operating off of just sunshine and wind. Yeah. And uh, that's fantastic. Because there's solar panels on your helipad. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We actually got them up, put them up there, and they survived the last hurricane, which means I guess my engineering on the way to mount them was okay this time. Hey, you're learning. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I haven't lost any. So um, just the figuring out of everything from the electronics to the computers to the physical structure to how do you work on something that really wasn't designed to be worked on. Yeah. So how do you hang off of the side when there's no walkway underneath it, you know, stuff like that. And I think that's been part of the challenge, but also part of the gratification of, all right, let me talk to a welder and he's gonna tell me, yeah, if you do this on this and this, then these welds will last much better and will be a lot more solid. So um, one of the things that I learned early in life is that it's not how much you know, it's how, how do you learn how to learn? And that's what I tried to instill into my kids. So knowing how to learn things is the old classic phrase of teach a man to fish. So in this case, uh, you know, teach a, a neighborhood how to rebuild a tower, right? Yeah, exactly. And fish, because there's fish literally mm -hmm. just right yeah, under our that, feet. That was our dinner again. It was wonderful. Yeah. This, this tower is, is, is really impressive because if you go just kind of walk through it, which I've done just so many times today, you, you see, again, the, 
the bones of it. The bones of it are still here. There's just things that you guys have made. I mean, there's running water. Yep. There's uh, there's uh, which you gather from uh, from rainwater, correct? Yeah. Yeah. The engineers that designed these originally had a couple things they did not so great, but they had a couple things they did really well. And one of them is they made the entire helipad concave with all the water running into one of three large holding tanks. So at any particular time, because of the frequent rains out here, we have around anywhere from 14 to 16,000 gallons of rainwater, which needs just a little bit of treating before we can actually use it for showering and washing dishes and you name it. Yeah. So. Now you mentioned the, the the cameras and you mentioned hurricanes and I think a lot of people may have become aware of Frying Pan Tower um, going back as far as Hurricane Arthur, Hurricane uh, Florence, especially during Florence there was the webcam of your American flag that yep. really got pulled apart by the winds but then you auctioned it off for uh, to, to give the money to I think you said the American Red Cross That's here right. in Wilmington. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But you were out here for uh, several of those hurricanes, and I know people ask you about them. What is it like to be out here during the hurricanes? I understand there's a few well, misconceptions. You know, when you're on shore, a hurricane is an extraordinarily dangerous thing because there's so many things on shore that can be picked up and flung through the air. You've probably all seen the video of people getting whacked by stop signs and things mm -hmm. like that. But out here, there's nothing but water and wind. and Wearing a pair of goggles stops the, <laughs> the water that's going like little bee stings against you at 100 plus miles an hour. And the wind, if you close all the doors and batten all the hatches, as they would say, um, really doesn't seem to affect this facility. Uh, anything that could have been blown off uh, would have been blown off many years past. So now it's really a matter of, all right, let's just make sure we're prepared and try not to be foolish and uh, let the Coast Guard know that I'm going to have this many souls on board. Um, you know, we don't take it lightly. But I will say that when the water turns a beautiful sherbet kind of aqua color because there's so much air mixed up in it, and when the waves are so large that they're no longer waves, they're hills, because they're anywhere from 20 to 30 feet tall, and they're rolling past the legs, which are really skinny, so it just slides right past, mm -hmm. the waves don't bother you. The wind is blowing in a constant direction, and then you're in the eye of the storm, and then you have ability to phone home and say, hey, here's what's going on, we're all good, uh, or take a nap on the helipad for that matter. Or talk to CNN at one point, I know you yeah, did. <laughs> might, have, might have happened. And um, then when the back end of the storm comes past, uh, when your daughter's only concern is that uh, the cake that she was baking in the oven fell, you know, it's like, all right, well, you know, first world problems. So, you know, I have a great compassion and uh, understanding for the difficulties on shore. I don't ever want a hurricane because of all the difficulties it causes and the loss of life. Mm -hmm. But, uh, and Matthew, for example, we were perfectly fine out here, not an issue whatsoever. But we immediately jumped on a helicopter the next day, went back to shore and helped take care of several elderly folks that had lost power. So we helped them configure it so they could have their backup generators and you know not lose all their refrigerator and freezers. You know, that, and that's important. We could have stayed out here and ignored the world, but uh, that's not what this is all about. No. And that's and that's absolutely kind of the mission today. <laughs> One thing that I, we talked about earlier, and I know that that you've 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 joked about, but is actually very serious is uh, well, serious in, in a fun kind of way. Uh, this is the perfect place to weather a hurricane. It sounds like, but it's also the perfect place to weather a pandemic. <laughs> um, social distancing at its finest. Yeah, we are six feet away. So yes, uh, we are. We have a table between you us. You know, it, it's been interesting because 
people would say, how can you have a volunteer out there? Because there's a pandemic, you, you know, might be carrying COVID out there. But we do ask the same basic questions. We, you know, do you have a temperature? Have you been in these type of circumstances? You know, what's going on in your life? Do you hang out in bars and all that sort of stuff? Did you just rush a fraternity? <laughs> you know, but um, we've been really lucky. We've had a lot of people that have volunteered that are very conscientious. And uh, we understand that, yeah, these are difficult times. This is not a place where you want to bring out a person that would be susceptible to some of the issues that COVID might bring. Um, we usually have people that are vigorous and wanting to participate, even if they have some limited capabilities. That's perfectly fine. So, um, you know, if there's a, uh, a pandemic on shore, it's not so bad out here. If there's a zombie apocalypse, we understand that they don't know how to <laughs> climb the legs with all the barnacles. So we're probably okay. Hey. Uh, one thing that I think was interesting that you mentioned is the volunteer aspect of this. Right. You have kind of a, a host of people, uh, almost like a, a repertoire of people who have different skills that have reached out and told you that they would love to contribute what they can, yeah. when they can, when you need them. And so someone might reach out to you and say, I'm a good electrician or I'm yep. this or that. Mm -hmm. And you say, that's great. I'm going to put you on this list. Mm -hmm. And when I need that, I'm going to send out an email blast. We'll have a volunteer trip. And yep. that's how this works. And so that's kind of really how is. that's happening this weekend. <clears throat> you know, it is funny because I will get someone that will contact me. And, you know, when we're talking one-on-one -on -one like this, you can say, you know what, here's my skills and use me when you need me. Give me a call. Yeah. And they don't understand the logistics of, well, you know what, gosh, over the last... 10 years, I've got currently 12, 1,300 people that are saying, give me a call. Mm -hmm. I, as much as I want to, I can't remember all those people and have a life and be a normal human. So what I do is indeed, um, I will send out an email blast. Here's what we're going to really work on. And I might get a ping from someone that says, you know, I don't know how to weld. I don't know how to do this, but you know what? I'm a really good cook and I can clean and organize. So for instance, this next weekend, one of the people that's coming back out as a volunteer, a repeat volunteer, is going to take the entire pantry completely apart, clean it all out. We're going to repaint all the walls in there, put it all in order, organize all of it, and put it all back in place. Now, that doesn't sound like a huge thing. If you, see all, if you saw our pantry, you'd know that that's a really big deal. That way, we can actually keep all the canned goods that are expiring towards the front, etc. You know? um, so, there's a place for that. We also have people that are like, I'm a professional welder, and I can come out there and you know what, I can make it so that your walkways don't fall off, and there's a place for that. What we really want to do is we want to make it so that people who wish to participate, we want to give them an avenue to be able to. You know, we're outside America, and until we can figure out some clever form of funding, um, we don't get any funds from the state or the federal at all. And um, because of that, we basically, you know, put our hat out and say, if you want to help us, you cover the transportation, we're going to feed you, we're going to give you room and board, and we're going to have an adventure while you're out here. And we're going to do it safe, and we're going to show you some amazing sunsets, as we did tonight. Okay. And, um, you know, you get to carry something home with you that you probably can't go pick out at uh, you know, Disneyland. There's a real sense of ownership, I imagine, with yeah. people. You know, that's yeah. what they're taking back. They're taking back that I helped with that pantry, I painted that door. I made a know. difference. Yeah. yeah. And, and that's really what it is. You know. Um, that's probably the only way we'll actually get this done and that is part of why you know a couple years ago when I realized I'm like you know what as much as I want to and as hard as I work I can't do this by myself and how do I reach out and basically be vulnerable and say I need your help and so many people have done that and I think the hardest thing for people to understand is that 
it's not whether or not uh, you're capable or skilled, it's whether or not you see the email and you sign up and you jump on the list. Because then you're actually gonna go. You know, the guys that pinged me two days ago, hey, we're going out by the tower and do you need anything? And first life, I was like, ah, no, we're okay, we're good and everything. But then I realized, you know what, my helicopter's overloaded that's bringing out a couple folks, so if I can get on your boat and carry out some more supplies that I've got sitting on shore, yeah, I really could use a ride. And they're like, really? Great. So, you know, 2.30 this morning I got up and <laughs> drove down to the coast and jumped on a boat by 7.30 and, you know, fell asleep in the beanbag in the back of it until we got out here. But, um, you know, sometimes that's what it takes. It's, I, I, I made the illusion earlier, and, and it is a, it's, a, it's a cheesy one, but I think it applies here. It really does take a village to keep this place going. Yeah, really because, correct me if I'm wrong, but the intended lifespan of this tower was 50 years. Yeah, and that's come and gone. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we've had many engineers. We had NASA out here with five different engineers. We're talking PhDs with PhDs. And they basically said, here's the most important seven things. Fix them and fix them in this order. And that's what we've really boiled into and tried to fix. You know, some of those we are ahead on, some of them we're behind on. And really the, the biggest thing is to consider is that rust never sleeps. It just keeps going. So for us to keep moving forward and trying our best to get ahead of that curve, that's really the only way to say, hey, you know what? I'm long since gone, but there's another 50 years and this thing's still here. And that's really my goal. I'd like to be able to say at the end of my tenure here, because this is, this is like a house. You work on it for a while, you pass it on to the next guy. <laughs> and it's just a matter of how do I put it in the best shape possible and put it in the best hands possible for the next group of people to continue to move this forward. So people can learn about the oceans and understand this incredibly amazing resource we have just right off the coast. I mean, I've, I've learned stuff just today. I yeah. tried fish I'd never had, and I'm yeah, not a big yeah. seafood person, and it was amazing. It was good. I and it's, I think there is a real value in this place because it is so unique, but it also really is just tapping into the natural amenities of this area that so many people, because we're, we are landlocked in, in so many ways, sure. don't really get to experience. I mean, there's, you know, keeping this place up, making sure that it's stable uh, can have such good positive ramifications for the future because you were telling me about some boy scouts you brought out here yeah and they got to do some stuff like that you know it's it's one of the things we've always been open to is if there's people that have special needs that want to come out here or if they have a group of people if it's a if it's a father son family brothers nephews we had five guys out here that brought a six guy and he was celebrating his two-year anniversary of being cancer free and so they were up on the helipad watching the sunset having a nice drink and just excited to be alive. Mm -hmm. And for me, I was just standing in the background, just so glad for them to go, you know what? Special time, life is not something to be taken for granted, especially nowadays, right? Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, the more we can do that, the more we can make this a focal point for people that would say, life matters mm -hmm. and let's live it as best as we can. Um, I, I say this to people, I woke up about 10, 12 years ago. Uh, early in the morning, I actually had this strange epiphany and I'll share this quickly if I can with you. Yeah. I realize that you know every one of us will die eventually. This sounds morbid, but we know that we will die. So if we knew exactly when, if you knew it was five years from now, 20 years from now, two months from now, how would you live your life? You would definitely live your life. If someone told me, Richard, you got six months left to go, I would live my life very differently from just getting up and going in and doing whatever. And I thought, well, wait a minute. Since we know that day will come, 
even though we don't know when it is, why are we not living that way right now? Mm -hmm. And that was my wake-up call to say, all right, let's get up every day with a sense of what can I do? How can I make sure that I'm putting my best foot forward? How can I tell those around me that I care about, that I do love them and they're important to me? Uh, because I may not have that chance, you know? Um, and I think if we all kind of changed our viewpoint on our understanding of where we are in our existence, then you know, maybe we jump on that bandwagon too. How much of that time would you spend out here? Well, it depends on how much I actually spend with people uh, versus just being out here and staring at the sunset. <laughs> so um, I try my best to do a good life balance. I will say that my first years on the tower, I was so tower crazy that I think I spent too many too many um, weekends out here. Yeah. But um, since then, I have realized that uh, you know you really need to have time with family, time with those that care, and um, then out here to continue to move this forward. My biggest goal out here is let's get pushing it forward as fast as we can so it doesn't rust out from underneath us. Well, yeah, because you walk around and you see where, you know, you see where some of the rust oh, is, yeah. but you see where you have kind of braced it. One thing you said earlier mm -hmm. was that, you know, rust doesn't stop. Um, and when you're kind of tackling the rust that you see, you don't just break it off or do something. You reinforce it yeah. and then maybe let the rust stay to provide just what little yeah. reinforcement it can. Yeah. It's an interesting thing about rust. It does have some measure of structural strength. It sounds crazy, right? Um, so you don't just knock it all off and then have the thing be too flimsy to hold itself up. So you actually add in and weld in new steel and then the steel I-beam, for example, that might be all rotted out, yeah, you can beat it up real good and then apply the rust preventative on it at that point. And then you'll see it was really a very thin piece of steel. So um, that's what we actually do. We add in new. We beat off the old stuff and knock off all the loose pieces and then add a little bit of corrosion prevention, put a new coat of paint on it, and keep moving forward. Uh, did, you, did you do research into the history of this after you bought it? I did as much as I could. It's, uh, it's one of the classic things of history keeps aging out on us. <laughs> you know, uh, the people that knew about the structure and knew what it was involved with and how it was operated and um, who participated actually in the operation of it, uh, they're passing us by. They're, they're moving on. You're saying this to someone who hosts a history podcast, so yeah, I would yeah, love yeah. some of those firsthand uh, accounts yeah. of this. I was really blessed to have a chance to talk to one of the guys that had been out here for many years. I think he was here from 70 to 72, and I found out from his daughter that he passed away last year. Hmm. But I was lucky enough to have a chance to chat with him, and he had talked about coming out here. And now his daughter, in his honor, wants to come out here, spend a weekend, and spread his ashes. And I told her, I said, we'd be absolutely honored to have you do so. That's incredible. It's almost like people who fought in World War II and, and come back to the battleship North Carolina in Wilmington. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I know there were some of those that came back uh, recently when the president was in town to yeah. name Wilmington uh, the World War II heritage city, the first. And I think places like this, especially places where people serve, yeah. I think really hold a real um, relevance and a real importance to their lives. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really nice. And I hope she does that. I do too. Yeah. Yeah. So what is the current condition of the tower? I know you mentioned earlier that your, your, one of your current projects is to go down below and, and, and work on it down there. What are you right. doing down there? Well, you know, to sum up the current condition, I would tell you that there's three of these facilities still in existence. There's mm -hmm. ours, the Diamond Shoals, and the Chesapeake. And they are in various states of repair or disrepair, I guess you would say. And so based on it and based on the condition of a couple of them, we know what will happen if we absolutely do nothing. 
And that's a scary thought. We also know that uh, we probably have a runway of anywhere from five to 10 years if we did absolutely nothing. But that is a, a uh, inappropriate way of taking care of something you've been given the chance to take care of. So we're going to be focusing on how do we get the most critical parts, the water level area where it's rusting so quickly, the anodes, which will help it prevent it from corroding so quickly, uh, the welders and the steel that will help reinforce the steel that's failing. And then one of the things, <laughs> uh, hopefully most people can appreciate this, one of the things that's helped tremendously is that we've got on a weight loss plan. The tower itself was originally designed to hold an additional 310,000 pounds of liquid, both water and fuel. So by not filling those fuel tanks, not filling those water tanks, we have lost 310,000 pounds, which makes it uh, a whole lot lighter on our feet, per se, and buys us a little bit of time. That's not the end answer, um, and we probably will never fill them up again as that was, but that does give us a little bit of flexibility so that there's not so much stress on the trusses underneath us. Yeah, and the trusses were what you were going to start working on, correct? Yeah, absolutely. We've got uh, some areas of the trusses where we're going to add in some additional steel. And then down again at the water level, we have some big pipes, 18 inches in diameter and about 80 feet long, which is going to take us a barge. Anyone has a barge, let me know. <laughs> and uh, we'll carry them out here, weld them in place. We've got the welders and uh, we have the know-how. Now it's a matter of getting the equipment and getting it here. Yeah, I like the, that you were telling me earlier that it's done little by little by people mm -hmm. by people. I mean, it's, it's, right. it's one person can contribute this, one person mm -hmm. can contribute that. Um, and you even said, speaking of the, the weight loss, when, when I asked you what I should bring, you said pack light and stay light. And yeah, that's absolutely. kind of the philosophy out there. It, it is, as far as getting on a helicopter, that's <laughs> for sure. But, you know, as far as the getting it done, uh, when, my, when my girls were young and they were having trouble and struggling with math, and I said, girls, you're just eating elephants. And they both looked at me strange. And I said, well, you guys know. I said, you're just eating it a bite at a time. Let's just learn one little thing. And I realized out here, we don't eat elephants, we eat whales. So we eat whales just a bite at a time, just metaphorically speaking, of course. And uh, so we tackle this project a little bit, this project, and so we might be working on 10 or 12 different projects at the same time. So while we're here this weekend, we'll get in the water tank, we'll work on the walkways, we'll do a little bit of electrical work, you know, maybe work a little bit of computer stuff and put some paint on the walls. So. Uh, like I say, it's a matter of, uh, I, I guess we just say many people, uh, lots of hands, and uh, little bit by little bit, we're really putting it back together. Absolutely. And anything's going to help give it yeah. a little more life. I mean, if you did nothing and, and just used it as more of like a vacation home, it would yeah. just kind of sit there and eventually the ocean would take it. Yeah. yeah but it right now, I mean, you're kind of working to make sure it coexists with the ocean around it. Well, you know, it is funny. I had someone say, oh, well, you're the person. And I said, no, I'm the chief cheerleader, and I'm <laughs> the one that changes the toilet paper, and I'm the one that makes sure the dishes are clean and put away. So, you know, it's it's my job to just keep, uh, you know, pushing the everyone forward and try to get us so that we can actually, what do we do next? And I can give them direction and help them guide that. That's it. Well, Richard, you are a, I mean, you're this champion for, for this place. I mean, you recognize the history of it. Mm -hmm. You recognize the value of it currently and the, the purpose of it in the future. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious, you know, you purchased it 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. What's it been like to have this in your life for a decade now? Um, I would say it's kind of like a fine wine that you didn't appreciate when you first got it. Okay. So 
you know, if you're a connoisseur of, of decent wines, you might go, oh, well, I don't know so much about it. I'll just pop the cork and see how it is. But the tower has aged well in how it has taught me things that I never would have even thought about. I mean, you know, so I'm doing a little bit of astrophysics. I'm doing some radar research. I'm doing some telecommunications work. I'm learning about metallurgy. I'm learning how to deal with marketing and how to do some fundraising. I'm learning how to give of myself and let go of things. Because, you know, if you wanted to do something, you did it yourself, right? No, you really have to learn how to show other people, here's what needs to be done, what would you do? How would you do it? So I would say this has been a 10-year you know, path around the sun of basically learning how to spread the message. It's a give and take out here. I mean, it, you're, you're given so much just with natural beauty, but, mm -hmm. you know, being out here, you know, have to sacrifice a few things that were the comforts of, of being on land. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I want to tell everyone that's listening that just walking around here is really fascinating because not only can you see the age, you can see how sturdy it is still. You can see, you know, I almost expected just to just to kind of have this anecdote. I almost expected to feel it move with the water. And mm -hmm. I imagine people probably do think that. And you don't. This yeah. thing is solid because it's, it's. I mean, its legs are very much in bedrock. Yeah. And that's what this is out here, correct? Bedrock? Yeah. I mean, this is, I mean, there's sand, but. No, yeah, it's, it's solid rock. There's a little bit of sand drifts in various areas, but it is, the legs are actually well deep into the bedrock, and then each leg is filled up with cement. So, so it's not going anywhere. Not going anywhere. Mm -hmm. But it's going to take all that work to make sure that, you know, what's still up here where we yep. are um, survives. Right. I mean, 50 years from now, that's mm -hmm. what you want. You want somebody else to be in this room right now, Absolutely. enjoying themselves, work, doing right. a little work. Yeah, maybe with air conditioning. <laughs> maybe with air conditioning. <laughs> you were telling me that might be a possibility. I mean, we got some breeze right now. Yeah. And technically, we have our first live audience with the birds outside yeah, the window. But um, <laughs> they have been, uh, they've been cheering us on. But right. Richard, this, this tower is... It has said people are so intensely fascinated with it. I imagine mm -hmm. just kind of longingly looking at it from off the shore. Um, it, it's it's hard to kind of put into words what it's like to be out here. I watched the sunset earlier and it's hard not to reflect on things, you know, right. whether you want to or not. I was I was sitting there thinking about, as I do when I go to the beach a lot, a lot of the history that would have crossed by this very path in the last 300 years of the development of this region and the, the buildup of this region. And this tower now stands here as, um, as a marker in yeah. so many ways and it's worth protecting and, and that's what you're doing. You know, um, one of the things that most of us hopefully realize is that we think we'll be here forever. We won't. And if we can do some good while we're here and if we can make a mark that helps someone in the future, it's not about saying, oh, you know, this person did that. It's more about, wow, look at what this is and let's be part of it. Yeah. So if someone's listening to this and they're like, I have a skill and I think I could do some good at Frying yep. Pan Tower, what should they do? You just go to fptower.org, sign up on the volunteer. It'll put them on an email list. We don't spam anybody. And once we actually get uh, a particular trip scheduled where we're going to do A or B or C project, uh, we'll send out an email blast. It'll tell you what the things are that we're going to do. It'll list what the requirements are. So do you have this skill set or whatever? Uh, and no, you don't have to be certified. You know, technically being outside of America means we don't have to have quite the level of certifications, that sort of thing. <laughs> uh, 
Um, but so murder is still murder, so don't get any ideas yeah, about yeah, international yeah. waters. Nothing, nothing crazy about <laughs> like that. So yeah, you didn't even mention all the things that we technically could do out here, but we don't do. But uh, that's another story, right? So uh, if they simply sign up on that, they'll find out about it. And then if they really want to know some more, they can communicate with me directly. Even though there might be hundreds of thousands of people uh, asking questions, I still look at all of them and answer them all directly. So if you have a burning question, you want to know about it, you know, I'm easy to find. I think I've got the most published phone number in the internet right now. You do. I called you at the height of Hurricane Florence yeah. about that flag. There you go. There you go. And uh, my whole purpose of that is is that, you know, there's enough things that make it difficult to do things in this world. Let's make it so you can at least find out and get some answers and be part of it. Mm-hmm. Well, as you can hear, the the sun has gone down. I think the stars are out outside, are. and the uh, and the waves are crashing. Um, this has been a truly incredible experience, and I'm I think it's just really important for people to know that you know the work being done out here right now. It's it's not the bed and breakfast that it was. It's this volunteer project to allow people to come in and just help preserve history. And uh, just because of the nature of this podcast, I I champion that mission very, very much. So thank you for doing the work that you're doing to preserve this tower. And uh, thank you so much for having me. I'm glad you're here. Now grab a paintbrush. Exactly. I'll go do some (laughs) manual labor. That's it for this very special episode of Cape Fear Unearthed, recorded right on deck of Frying Pan Tower. Thank you so much for joining me. And another special thank you to Richard for having us out on the tower. Check back soon for our next episode, when we'll turn to another chapter in our local history book. Until then, please make sure that you're a member of our Facebook group, where listeners can ask questions about our episodes and share their own memories of the region's history. In that group, I post extra content for each of our episodes, and I share all of my coverage of local history for the Star News. You can find that group by searching Cape Fear Unearthed on Facebook. If you have episode ideas or questions about the show, you can also email me directly at capefearunearthed at gmail.com. And don't forget to sign up for the Cape Fear Unearthed newsletter, which goes out every week. You can sign up for that newsletter at starnewsonline.com newsletters. As always, you can get a list of all the books, articles, and resources used in researching this podcast in the show notes of each episode. Cape Fear Unearthed was written, edited, and hosted by me, Hunter Ingram. You can find more of my work at starnewsonline.com or by following me on Twitter at Hunter underscore Wesley. Additional editing for the show is done by Adam Fish. This podcast was made possible by listeners and readers like you. Support local journalism and Cape Fear Unearthed by subscribing to the Star News today at starnewsonline.com slash subscribe. And while you're subscribing to things, be sure to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcast or wherever you get the show so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, leave us a review, which will help more people find Cape Fear Unearthed. Until next time, get out and explore the Cape Fear region on your own. You never know what you might unearth. Unearthed.